So we've been uh, in this study for a while, and uh, probably probably we'd be done by now, except for the COVID thing. We haven't had all our all the meetings every month, uh, and the title of our series is is One New Man, and what it means to be the body of Christ. And we've covered quite a bit of ground already. Uh, so, in, in the outline is coming from a list of words or images or metaphors that the Bible uses for the church. Uh, and of course, church is one of those, and that's the English word. The, the word ecclesia or iglesia or, uh, you know, all those, uh, words related to that is really, uh, direct. Well, that ecclesia is the Greek word and it means a group of people who are called out to a meeting. So assembly is the basic meaning of the word church. Uh, so, uh, we spent some time talking about the church as the assembly of believers. Then we talked about the idea of a body. So the church is a body, one body of Christ. Uh, and uh, we spent quite a bit of, I think we had three, maybe four lessons discussing the implications of that term. And uh, the emphasis is uh, the the new humanity that is created in Christ. We become one new man in the book of Ephesians. Uh, the book of Ephesians, by the way, is sort of critical to this whole discussion. Uh, and that also is where, uh, one of the spots anyway, where we get the idea of the church as a family or a household. Uh, and we're going to actually look at that verse again today, but it moves into another image. So, but last time we talked about the implications of what if we're a family? Uh, it, it, if we envision the church as a family, it changes how we operate as a church and how we relate to each other in the church. Uh, I was in a conversation, I guess, yesterday, uh, and uh, I had occasion to make this observation. There's a very strong tendency among Christians to think of the church as something you go to, as opposed to something you're part of. And uh, these, these biblical images really kind of uh, uh, combat that idea of church as something you go to, like you go to the store, or you go to a club meeting, or any of those things. Uh, if we're a family, there's more to it than that. Um, so today we're coming to a, another really interesting 
uh, metaphor, I guess you'd have to call it, for the church, and that is the temple of God. And so I just wanted to read the text where this is mentioned. It's the same text, by the way, at the end of Ephesians chapter 2, where the church is uh, a family, and of course before that it's a person, (laughs) a body, one new man, here, right, all of these right here in this, you know, couple of sentences in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So that's a family. Now, We've kind of skipped over one here, which is citizens, fellow citizens. And the church, the Bible does use the idea of a nation to uh, talk about the church. But, okay, Uh, we're moving forward anyway. Built on the foundation, members of the household of God. Well, that word household can describe the church as a family and the He goes on in chapter 3 to talk about the whole family of God. But here he says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. That's like giving the definition of the word temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, so uh, here we have this image of temple. Well, we also have this in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 3. It's presented in a slightly different, in slightly different terms, which we'll talk about. But in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, we read this, For we are God's fellow workers, and we in this instance refers to Paul, Apollos, and Peter, the various leaders in the church. He says, We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now, He's not trying to equate a field with a building. He's just using two different images. And so in the paragraph leading up to this sentence, he's talking about how some of us planted, some of us watered, God gave the growth. Uh, So there the church is pictured as a field. And then also God's building. From there he goes on to describe that. According to the grace of God, given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else, Apollos in particular, is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now this uh, takes us all the way back to the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul is emphasizing we preach Christ and Him crucified. 
the focus of the church and the reason he's writing the letter to the first Corinthians is they've gotten their attention distracted from that focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. So the whole book of first Corinthians is really about that. And here he's saying, look, there's only the one foundation in the church and that is Jesus Christ himself. And so here again, the church is being pictured as a building with Christ as the foundation. And we might say Christ and him crucified as the foundation. So a building that is not built on that foundation is not the church. So, and he makes a point of this. He says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So if we're, if we're grounded on something other than Jesus Christ and him crucified, then we've quit being a church. Well, anyway, then I'm, I'm going to skip over a section here because uh, it involves a complication that I think would distract us this morning. But he says, do, not, do you not know, this is verse 16, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. <clears throat> now, when this was written, <coughs> uh, there was still a temple in Jerusalem, uh, an Israel, a, a temple of Israel, but that temple was shortly in history to be destroyed. And God is in the process of making this new temple. And what is it made of? You, the church. And uh, so uh, the, both of these texts picture the church as the temple of God. And we're going to talk about what a temple is and how, how are we functioning as a temple. Um, so these two texts, though, they both use this image of a temple, but they do it in a slightly different construction, if you will. Now, Paul has written both of these texts. Uh, 1 Corinthians was written before Ephesians, just so you know. And uh, some scholars observe a sort of development of this idea of the church as a temple between uh, 1 Corinthians and Ephesians. I, I don't know that that really matters too much to us. But in Corinthians, the foundation of the temple is Christ. The, the, the whole foundation of the temple is Christ. And the leaders, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, or Peter, are pictured as the ones building on that. And the thing they're building is the church. And that grows into the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. In Ephesians, Christ is the cornerstone of the foundation. The apostles are, the, uh, are also in the foundation. And the church is built on that foundation of Christ along with the apostles and prophets. 
Now, there's no need to see any conflict here. There's a, uh, it's just the application of this image in two different ways. Uh, Christ, the cornerstone, <laughs> the cornerstone is that part of the foundation from which the whole building is constructed and measured. The, 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 you could call Christ the foundation of the foundation in that case. And so uh, there's not really any necessary conflict here. Uh, and uh, so what's, what we come to here is there's one foundation, one building, therefore one church. There's not uh, lots of temples. There's a temple. Now in Corinth, well, let me start in, in Ephesus, in, in Ephesians, this is the third image that Paul uses to emphasize the reconciliation of people together into this new people of God. And it's a reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles into one new community, if you will, of God. And so he's emphasizing the unity of the church. Uh, that's accomplished specifically in Ephesians chapter 2, by the work of the cross. So this is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And of course he says the same thing in, in Corinthians. So the unity of the church accomplished by the cross of Christ. This emphasizes the unity of the church, the, church, the whole church, the universal, invisible church, the body of Christ worldwide. It's a unity between nations that had been divided and are now reconciled together in one in Christ. In, in Corinthians, the emphasis is a little bit more on Corinth, on a church. Now, I think you need to understand this plea for unity in a church is grounded in the unity of the church. Uh, but in Corinthians, the passage is part of Paul's argument against the factions that had developed in Corinth. So this is the text where I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Christ. There's this development of, I don't know, uh, factions. That's the best word for it, I guess. Uh, so these guys were letting their loyalty to some particular Christian teacher or leader uh, subvert the foundation, the preaching of the gospel, the Jesus Christ and him crucified message. And so all of the first four chapters of the book of First Corinthians are sort of dealing with this problem. That's a problem in a church. So this isn't the problem of, well, we used to have the chosen people of God, the Jews and the nations who are not included. And in Ephesians, he's saying, okay, it used to be you had the chosen people of God, the Jews and the nations who were alienated from the household of God, but in Christ are brought into, and now God has reconciled those two parties, those two groups of nations together, into one new people, the church. And in 
in Corinthians, it's more like, well, some of you are, uh, some of you are not Christians, but Paulites or Apolites or Peterites. Uh, remember, this is all one foundation, one body, one building, the temple of God built on the foundation, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you're letting yourself get distracted from the gospel by your uh, focus on some particular Christian leader. Now, in my mind, this raises an interesting question is, well, how do you distinguish it? Should we not have, uh, should we not follow Christian leaders? so today you might hear someone say, well, I'm a Calvinist, or I'm a Methodist, or I'm a Baptist, or I'm a blah, blah, blah. Is there something wrong with that? And the answer to that question is not if it doesn't distract you from the gospel. Uh, and then there's the question of, well, how do you know when to, to say, well, this is the church and that isn't. So uh, there's a group of people in the world today who follow someone they regard as a prophet by the name of Joseph Smith. Well, how do we decide that's, that is someone we should separate ourselves from? Well, the answer to that question is it's not built on the foundation. The foundation is the foundation that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. The eternal son of God made man, sacrificed for sin, risen from the dead, ascended into the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have to be cautious because sometimes people claim the name of Jesus Christ, but the Jesus Christ they claim is not the Jesus Christ who is So that focus on the simplicity of the message of the gospel, Jesus and his substitutionary sacrifice for sins, uh, pouring out the grace of God uh, received by faith and faith alone, all of these things uh, are in that very simple formula, we preach Christ and him crucified. So there... We have to be cautious to avoid uh, disunity in the body of Christ and to maintain it with things that are not the body of Christ. And that can be a challenge. Um, But anyway, the point here is really a focus on the unity of the church in the church universal and in any particular church. So, the church is a temple. What is a temple? Well, let's think about what a temple is. First of all, as is mentioned in both of these texts, the temple is a holy place. A holy place. It is God's place. Things that were used in the ancient temple of Israel, for example, 
were dedicated to the temple and using them for any other purpose was a dangerous sin. You might remember the story of the Philistines capturing the Ark of the Covenant, for example, the God's chair in the house that is his temple. They, can, what, what would happen if someone came into your house and stole your chair, your favorite chair, your place? Well, and this isn't just any old, this isn't God's easy chair, this is God's throne. And so the Philistines steal the throne of God, the Ark of the Covenant. And it doesn't take long before they really regret it. It's holy. It belongs to God. And for it to go anywhere else, be used for anything else, is a profanity of the highest order. You might remember when they went to retrieve the chair chair from the Philistines, they didn't pay attention to the rules. And it's holy, so these are, these are not just any old rules. These are the rules regarding the implements of the dwelling place of God among his people. And so, because they didn't pay attention to the rules, they put it on a cart. Well, you're not supposed to ever put it on a cart. No one's supposed to touch it. And the scripture doesn't say, but they probably did touch it to put it on the cart. They just got a couple guys and they put it on the cart. Now it's on a cart. It's not supposed to be touching any carts. If it needed to be carried, and it did, it had little rings on the side of it. And the priests, and only the priests, no regular guy, So only people from the chosen tribe for the priesthood, the Levites, the priests, would get these long poles. And without touching it, they would put the pole through the rings, and that's how they were to carry it. All of this stipulated in the scriptures, the commandments given to Moses by God himself. Well, I didn't pay any attention to that. They just grabbed it and put it on the cart and they were hauling it back to where, where it's supposed to be. And it's on a cart, so it's, you know, bouncing down the road. Looks like it's going to fall off the cart. And this guy, I can't remember his name, maybe one of you remembers his name. Uh, this guy reaches up to keep it from falling on the cart and touches it. And God has had enough. The guy drops dead on the spot. This got everyone to pay attention to the rules. And it got David, who was king at the time, scared enough to say, okay, just park it, let's figure out what to do. It's holy. When I think about the temple and its holiness, I also think of Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah has a vision of the temple in heaven, the actual temple of God where Uh, in God's eternal dwelling place and it's in the throne room and there's these angels flying around and 
they have to keep their face covered in the presence of God. And the whole earth is filled, the, the, the temple is filled, and the angels are shouting, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah's reaction is, uh, get me out of here. I can't be here. Let, get me out. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among the people of unclean lips. There's no way I can survive in the setting of God's temple in His holiness. Uh, and so the temple is a holy, holy place. It's completely claimed and set apart to God, by God, for God. Well, what if we are that? What if the community of Christ is that? Uh, that's hard to even think about. Uh, but the temple is a holy place. The temple is a, is a dwelling place. It is the place where God is present to creation. It's the place where God lives. All through the Psalms, David talks about, I'm going to the house of the Lord. What's he talking about? He's talking about the temple. How are we the dwelling place of God? Well, these scriptures are explicit. We're the dwelling place of God because the Spirit of God, God Himself, dwells in and among us. You know, every now and then, you should think about some of these things that you get used to as a Christian. Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again. We say in, on Easter, we say He is risen, and we say He is risen indeed. And it's no big deal to us because we've heard it too many times. And in my estimation, the indwelling of the Spirit in the life of the Christian and in the life of the church is such a thing. We talk about it, and we go, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I've heard, yeah, yeah, the Spirit indwells me and us, and we just need to stop and for a second, every now and then, and go, wait a second, the living God, creator of all things, eternal one, actually takes up residence in you. What? And here, this is not about the individual Christian. This is about the church. The Spirit of God doesn't just indwell me and you and each of us, but He indwells the life of the one new man, the church. And in so doing, it is the temple of God. 
the dwelling place of God, the house of God. So when we come together in church, we are coming into the holy place of God. Not This room is not the holy place of God. We are. Um, and God himself resides in us. Again, that, it's hard to even think of that, what that means. And, and it doesn't necessarily come with any particular feeling or... You know, it could happen and you wouldn't even, you wouldn't go, oh, wait, the Holy Spirit. But sometimes it does. Most of the time it doesn't. But the Holy Spirit himself lives in us. This is the proclamation of the scripture. And it's grounded on the reconciling work of the cross of Christ. We become the temple the dwelling place of God. Another thing a uh, temple is, is a place of worship. Place of worship. What do you mean by worship? Well, generally speaking, what you mean by worship is sacrifice. A place where offerings are made to God. <laughs> and if you read the New Testament... There's a sacrifice in the temple that is the church. And that sacrifice is Christ. So it's where we, me and you together, honor the Father in the Son by the Spirit. And those words in and by are important. We worship the Father in the Son and the question is, well, how do we worship the Father? We see the Father in the Son. The Son is the representation of the Father to us and our representation before Him. But He's, we, we worship the Father in the person of the Son. And how do we do this? How do us sin, sinners do this? By the work of the Spirit in us. The Spirit dwelling in the life of the church worships the Father in the person of the Son. Uh, and so Christ, this ends up being very Christ-centered. Very, the, the, Our vision of the Father is in Christ himself. Well, also, we are led in this worship service by the Son. Who's the high priest of this temple? Well, just read through the book of Hebrews. It's repeated again and again and again. And I, I wanted to look at Hebrews chapter 2 where it's kind of summarized. Hebrews chapter 2. We read this, Since therefore the children share in, the fle in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, satisfaction for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Christ is pictured as the high priest that serves in this temple. And he, what is the sacrifice this priest offers in the temple himself? He's the atoning, he, present, he brings himself, and again, I just say, just read the book of Hebrews, won't even take you that long. That's this whole part, one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is the great high priest. The sacrifice he brings is his own body. He brings himself as our atoning sacrifice. And we uh, worship following him. In other words, like the congregation in the ancient temple, when the priest offers the sacrifice on their behalf, they are gathered to observe and glorify and honor and praise God on the basis of that sacrifice. And we are gathered and observing the sacrifice of Christ in the temple that we are. <laughs> uh, now, we imitate his supreme act of worship. His supreme act of worship is his offering of himself. And when the New Testament tells us what Christian worship is, what does it say we do? It says this, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a sacrifice alive. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, set apart, and pleasing to God. The scriptures in the Old Testament use this word pleasing to describe the aroma of the sacrifice in the temple. Paul's using in Romans 12, 1, the, te the, te the temple language. What's our service of worship? We present our bodies a living sacrifice to God, which is our, according to that text, spiritual service of worship. So we do a little version of what Christ did. What Christ did was to offer his body a sacrifice for sin. His sacrifice is atoning. Ours isn't. I don't, I don't make up for my sins by doing this. I simply adore and honor the grace of God received in Christ when I present myself a living sacrifice and worship before God. The temple's a holy place. It's where God lives, and it's where we worship, place of worship. <clears throat> it's also a meeting place. We gather. The church is a gathering. Uh, there's a lot of uh, bad theology in uh, contemporary Protestant theology 
that says stuff like, you don't really need the church. Well, of course you can be saved and you are as an individual. But you are not saved apart from the rest of us. That's not a biblical understanding of the church. I have known people who, or have known, uh, people who wanted to claim Christ and disregard the church. And yeah, that can be, but it certainly is not the image presented in the New Testament in the scriptures. And so it's a meeting place. We are called to gather together in person. The scripture, in fact, says, do not forsake the assembly of yourselves together. And then it says, like some people do. <laughs> Don't do that, it says. Uh, because there's something important about us together that is not achieved by each of us individually. So it's a meeting place. And then the last thing I wanted to say here is the people are the place. You know, in the Old Testament, the place was a place, a, a physical structure, yeah? And the Israelites were called to gather at that place at certain times. Every Israelite in the whole wide world was supposed to come there at those times. Well, now the place is us. So one of the interesting features of this is wherever you are, we are. I just want you to dwell on that for a second. We, God is present and available in the church assembled. So when we gather for worship on Sunday, what are we doing? We gather for worship, and this Sunday we'll receive the, the Lord's table, which is really kind of the thing that makes it worship in in the ceremonial sense. Uh, and honestly, we should probably do it every Sunday. But anyway, we, uh, we gather together, and we assemble together, and we do this little funny ritual of eating and drinking that is... Uh, emblematic of receiving Christ and Him crucified. Now, we're not Roman Catholics, so we don't think we're receiving the actual body and blood of Christ, but we are reenacting our reception of Christ. We're remembering, oh, the thing here is Christ and Him crucified. And this is when, so when we gather for worship, and of course, whether we receive the, the, do, perform this ceremony or not, that's what we're here for. To remember the gospel and to present ourselves again to, to Him as living sacrifice. This is the, our spiritual service of worship. It's why we're here. And so we gather. We become the temple, the embodiment of God in the world. He said in Matthew, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there. Uh, well, also then, when we go from here, you don't actually 
quit being the temple because we quit being assembled. And so you, wherever you are, we are in this idea of the temple of God, the body of Christ, the church. And so you are holy, a holy place, a dwelling place, a place of worship. <laughs> when someone meets you, they ought to be meeting Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's not just about what you say, of course. It's about who you are and how you conduct yourself and how you exhibit the character of Christ and the love of Christ, especially in the world. The people are the place. <clears throat> so you have this gathering and this expansion. My uh, former pastor used to say, when, when uh, people said, what's the evangelism, uh, evangelism program of the church? People sometimes ask you that. His answer to that question is, uh, you are. If you ask, what is God's missionary program? The answer is, the church. And the church mobilized into the world. Uh, so there's a Christ-embodied dwelling in us, in the temple. I think we, we forget about our holiness. That's easy to do because you get a, in the world and man, the world's a giant distraction place. We forget our foundation in Christ. We forget that the living God himself resides in each of us and in us. By the way, later in the book of the First Corinthians, Paul talks again about being a temple. And in that case, he applies it to the individual Christian. He says, don't you know that your body, you Christian, is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And there he's talking about their individual behavior, and their uh, sexual promiscuity in this particular church. And he says, how can you take the temple of God and attach it to a prostitute? <laughs> he wants to remind them of, that, of their holiness as the people of God. So this is both individual and collective. Uh, so where you go, we go. Uh, I think it can be useful just to remember that wherever you are, Christ came with you. <laughs> if you keep that in mind, it might change how you behave. <laughs> I find that I behave badly, and when I discover I've behaved badly, then I discover that I've forgotten myself in that exact way. That if I were conscious of his presence with me, 
I might have behaved better. And, you know, this isn't really about our behavior, but who you, how you act is grounded in who you know yourself to be. So we identify with Christ, in Christ, in the temple. We are the temple. And so, yeah, it's holy. I mean, we regard our church building as sort of a holy place. I can imagine how horrified we would be if one day we came in here and someone had spray-painted obscenities all over the walls in here. So don't be spray-painting obscenities on your walls. Because you are more holy than this room. You are. That's not a, I wish you were. That's not a, why don't you be? That is, you are. God has, not might or could, but has claimed you, set you apart, built you into this holy temple that is the church. That's who you really are now. Yeah. That changes a lot of things. That changes a lot of things. Let me pray. Father, thanks for the Word of God. Thank you that you uh, clearly identify us in the Scriptures. Lord, help us to focus and maintain our attention on Christ and to live as the temple of God in this world together, to encourage each other in this, and to reflect who you are to each other and to the world around us. And uh, we thank you for the privilege. We pray in Christ and by the Spirit. Amen.